0: The trucker convoy protest in the capital has dominated the news for the past few weeks, with many Canadian commentators expressing shock and disbelief that the country is now experiencing such a forceful wave of populism. But at least one person is not surprised at all.
1: Distributions of income, as skewed as they are today, have in the past led to populist movements.
0: Jeff Rubin is an award-winning Canadian author. He's the former chief economist at CIBC World Markets and a former senior fellow at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. His latest book is called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. And it has turned out to be quite prescient. In The Expendables, Jeff takes a close look at those who've been left behind by our current economic order, and what we can expect to see if we don't pay attention to their concerns. Jeff Rubin joins me for a deep dive into the economic conditions driving the current unrest. That's today on Lean Out. Jeff, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Good to see you again.
0: Good to see you as well. And thank you so much for coming on. We have a lot to talk about today. (laughs) I want to start by talking about a piece you wrote in the New York Times in October of 2019. You were warning that Canada could experience a populist wave and you asked a question, how long can politicians avoid real talk about how globalization has failed the middle class? And you've really been proved right during this past few weeks We'll get to the truckers in a moment, but first, let's talk about the analysis in your book, The Expendables, and about who has been left behind. So who are The Expendables?
1: Okay, well, I guess the book, in broad brush terms, is about how much the few have and how little the many have. And the many that I focus on in this book is the hollowed out middle class, whose heyday would have been in the 50s and early 60s. And the last 40 to 50 years, they've seen a significant reduction in their size and in their incomes. And they've become, for all intent and purposes, marginalized in our economy. And I pointed out that you know distributions of income, as skewed as they are today, have in the past led to populist movements. And populism can bat from both sides of the plate, and we saw that. Recently in the United States. I mean, Bernie Sanders, what he was advocating was just as populist as Donald Trump was advocating. So I mentioned Brexit and the rise of Boris Johnson in the UK, you know, the Yellow Vest protests in France, of course, the Trump presidency in the United States. And then, you know, I point out that populism really doesn't have it, didn't at the time have any expression in Canada. But if you looked at the Canadian Canadian situation: the Canadian middle class had been hollowed out just as much, if not more, in Canada than in these other jurisdictions. And you only had to look to the auto industry, that was once the pride and joy of the Canadian economy. You know, roughly a quarter of the labor force had had lost their jobs. Jobs had been moved to to Mexico, where wages were a fifth to a tenth. And you know that was sort of. A microcosm of what happened to the Canadian manufacturing sector at a whole that shed something like half a million jobs in the last 20 years, and there had been no real wage gains for decades. Curiously, uh, we continued not to have a populist political expression. I mean, that might have been different had the Conservative Party machinery not conspired to deny Maxine Bernier the leadership of the Conservative Party. But the fact is that he became marginalized. And at least within the confines of Canada's established political system, there was not really an expression of of the aspiration of a disenfranchised middle class, either on the left or in the right. Now, curiously, that's changed. Perhaps not curiously. Perhaps this was a powder keg just willing to be lit. Nature abhors the vacuum. The conditions for populism, as I mentioned, were as ripe in Canada as elsewhere, and hence the freedom convoy. And, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about truckers because, you know, truckers' lots are a lot different than they were 30, 40 years ago in the heyday of Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters Union. Truckers mm. were very well paid. About 50% of all truckers in North America were unionized. And that also had an impact on what non union truckers got because, of course, employers had to compete. Now, you know, less than 10% of truckers are unionized. And, you know, you know what's happened to their income. So So it's not perhaps a total accident that it's the truckers, although, you know, this is an odd time in the middle of supply chain concerns that the Trudeau administration should all of a sudden add on these vaccination requirements that effectively make it very difficult for them to do their jobs.
0: Mm. And I want to dig more into that conflict from an economic standpoint in a moment. But first, let's just back up for a moment. I just want to ask you a very simple question, make sure Mm -hmm. everyone's on the same page. Can you define globalization for everyone?
1: Well, globalization has a whole lot of different meanings to different people. What I'm talking about is the economic phenomenon of globalization, which is basically separating where goods are produced from where goods are sold. In the past, in in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the vast majority of goods that were sold in your market were produced very close to your market. You know, whether it's the television, the radio, the car, clothing, furniture, shoes, they were made close to where they were sold. Globalization has totally separated. Where things are made from where they're sold. And of course, we saw a mass movement of production of virtually everything to low wage markets. Some refer to it as a race to the bottom. What's allowed this to take place is the elimination of trade barriers like quotas and tariffs that used to protect domestic markets and used to ensure that that goods sold in that market were produced in that market. I mean, you know, before the World Trade Organization, the wage gaps between China and the United States or Canada were even bigger than they are today. But you wouldn't have a hope in hell if you moved your factory to China of ever selling anything made in that factory in China back in the Canada in the United States. That wasn't possible with the trade barriers. Those trade barriers have been totally gutted through successive rounds of World Trade Organization tariff cuts to free trade deals. And as Donald Trump quite correctly pointed out, and on this score, Bernie Sanders had the exact same view. Those WTO trade rules were stacked against the interests of American and Canadian workers. So when I'm talking about globalization, I'm basically talking about the divorce between production and sales and the mass migration of employment and production from high-wage countries to low-wage countries.
0: And now I want to talk just briefly about the Canadian economy and Canadian workers during the pandemic. The last time you and I sat down to chat, it was closer to the beginning of the pandemic. Since then, what has happened to our economy and what has happened to our workers, particularly our low-wage workers?
1: Well, you know, they've borne the brunt of this and many of them have lost their jobs. Many of them worked in small businesses that were shut down. And I think that what we found is that the pandemic actually exacerbated the income disparities that were already at record levels. I mean, you know, if you look at income distribution, The people who did the best in the pandemic were, in fact, billionaires because they received essentially welfare checks through the SUSE program to pay for the workers that they didn't lay off. So I think that that the pandemic, if anything, has exacerbated the income divisions in Canada. And as I pointed out at the beginning, Tara, when you have those kinds of disparities in income, you know, people search for different different political solutions. And, and you know, this has happened historically in the past. But as I've noted before, those solutions can come from either the left or the right.
0: Why is inflation so high right now? Let's spend some time on that because I don't really understand what's going on.
1: OK, well, there are several factors at play. First of all, Far before the pandemic impacted global supply chains, global supply chains were already challenged by the tariffs that the Trump administration had imposed, which were, you know, the the most significant tariffs since the Smoot-Hawley tariffs in, in the early 1930s. And it's interesting to note that those tariffs, while they were widely condemned by the Democratic congressional opposition at the time have been continued under the Biden administration. There hasn't been one tariff against China that's been reduced. Then you had the supply chain issues that came with the pandemic. And it started off with masks and respirators the sort of just-in-time system of delivery from a highly integrated global supply chain became just too late when it came to getting masks or respirators that were desperately needed during the height of the pandemic. In fact, at one point, the U.S. invoked uh, the Defense Production Act where they converted abandoned factories in Michigan that GM and Ford had to making ventilators in the same way that Ford used to create bombers during World War II. So what happened was people lost confidence in global supply chains. And that brought a whole new meaning to economic self-sufficiency. It wasn't just about getting back high paying manufacturing jobs, which was Trump's message. It was about consumers being able to get what they had ordered. And you know this went for everything from pharmaceuticals to semiconductors for the auto industry to bikes. There was a total seizure of the global supply chain. So all of a sudden, President Biden, who had, you know, been severely critical of Trump's nativist trade policies, declared that it was now in America's national security interests that they be self-sufficient in a whole wide range of industries from semiconductors to pharmaceuticals. And you're starting to see things That we haven't seen in decades, like billions of dollars invested in the semiconductor industry in the United States that hadn't seen a cent of investment in the last couple of decades because all the semiconductors were being built in Taiwan and Korea, and for good reason, because the wage costs of doing that were a fraction of what the cost would be in the United States. So I think supply chains, have definitely re-engineered a return of production back to where it originally was. The good news of that story is that all of a sudden, you know, high-paying manufacturing jobs that President Obama said would never return have returned. The bad news is that anything now made in North America that was once made in China or Taiwan or Korea or India or Bangladesh or Vietnam is going to cost a lot more because the labor cost is going to be five to 10 times. And that's going to be reflected in everything from the price of integrated circuits to the price of cars to the price of steel. So that's an important element of the inflation story. The other important element of the inflation story that is getting more and more attention and play in the financial press is the steadfast unwillingness of central banks to deal with inflation, because interest rates right now are at their lowest level in the last 5,000 years. Now, you know, when you have interest rates at these levels, then, of course, you're encouraging people to spend. And when you're encouraging people to spend at a time that supply is being squeezed, it's not surprising that all of a sudden we're seeing U.S. CPI inflation printing 7.5%. Canadian inflation printing over 5%, German inflation printing over 6%, because none of these central banks, while they've certainly talked a lot about how they're going to hike rates, have really responded, with the singular exception of the Bank of England, which has raised rates twice, but from incredibly low levels. So there's a lot of things going on. In fact, I'm going to be writing a book about this very subject. There's a lot of things going on, but let's say the beginning was the move to protectionism that certainly was led by the Trump administration. Second was the disruption of supply chains because of the virus and the need to move production back in order for consumers to get the goods they were ordering. And lastly, central banks falling very badly behind the curve in addressing the rise in inflation.
0: Mm. Okay. That makes sense. And we'll really look forward to reading that new book for sure, because this is such a- I'm already
1: at 30,000 words.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. It's around 70, as you know, Tara.
0: Yes. (laughs) So with inflation, of course, you know the cost of living is going up. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, real estate is through the roof. Rents are really high. Inflation is causing basic costs to be high. You're hearing this concern from a lot of people. You heard it in some of the on the ground reporting in Ottawa from the truckers. And in the meantime, you have this bizarre kind of cleaving of classes during the pandemic. You know, people like me who can work at home ordering takeout, not as much affected. And and then you have a group of people who have been out every day working in the pandemic who have gotten sick, who have lost money. What do you see as sort of the consequences of that real class divide that we're seeing? Okay.
1: Well, you know, it's, It's refreshing that you emphasize the class divide, because I believe that what divides us is far more class than race or gender. That's certainly not a view that is popular among most of the media. But if you look at the class divisions, I mean, who does inflation benefit and who does inflation hurt? And and the people that inflation hurts the most are wage earners because it robs them of their income. And, you know, in fact, the Bank of England just came out with a study showing that British workers are now going to see the largest real wage decline that they've seen in over 20 years because of inflation. And their circumstances are no different than the circumstances of North American workers. That's the real problem with inflation, is it robs workers' of the purchasing power of their wages, what they can buy with their wage shrinks and shrinks over time. Who benefits from allowing inflation? Well, who benefits the most from having zero interest rates is without question the stock market, particularly tech stocks, but stocks in general, because stocks compete with bonds for investors' capital, whether it's a retail investor, whether it's a pension plan, whether it's an insurance company. The problem is that the ownership of stocks is now the most limited it's been in the entire post-war period. That, for example, the top 10% of the American population owns over 80% of all publicly traded stocks. That the average North American household owns less stocks today than they did before 2008, even though we're coming off the longest running bull market in history. So getting back to inflation and getting back to the central bank's unwillingness to raise interest rates. The key question people gotta ask themselves is, who benefits? The stock market benefits. That's who's being protected. Who loses? Workers, because inflation continues to rise and robs them of the purchasing power of their wages.
0: And when you're thinking through sort of the issues of the trucker protest, I mean, we're speaking on Friday, February 18th. As we're speaking, the police are moving in to break up that blockade. So we'll be watching that news today. What do you think are the major issues that this protest movement has raised that we all need to think about now?
1: Well, you know, it's it's about people being marginalized. And, and you know, if it, if it wasn't going to be about the vaccine, it was going to be about something else, because as I say, Tara, the conditions For the rise of populism are just as much in evidence in Canada as they are elsewhere. And the police may well break up the trucker blockade in Ottawa, but, you know, populism is not going to go away. Just like in the United States. I mean, you know, people thought that that populism was a, you know, a a black sheep event that just sort of happened with the election of Donald Trump, and and now we're finding out that in fact it's it's a lasting and growing force in American politics that's probably going to be very triumphant in uh, the upcoming midterm elections in both the Senate and the House, and and similarly, I don't think this populist movement in Canada is going to all of a sudden dissipate. The question is. Is it going to be endorsed by a political party? And to this point, it has not. You know, the conservatives have tried to steer a middle of the road sort of posture with Aaron O'Toole. And middle of the road doesn't work in a highly polarized society. And believe me, we have a highly polarized society. Mm -hmm. What I think, you know, people will also should discuss is the way that these people have been demonized in the media. And, you know, that's a familiar thing, just as, you know, people who supported Trump or Sanders were, if not demonized, uh, certainly attacked in the mainstream media. And I think, you know, the media's role in this is, is something that needs to be talked about. It's not an accident that one of the most popular signs of the truckers is the media is the virus. And certainly They've been less than impartial.
0: I have also been concerned about the demonization of this movement and also about the very polarized coverage of it. It's, it makes it very difficult to figure out what is actually happening on the ground.
1: Yeah, there isn't a whole lot of nuance in the media's coverage of this event. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's always a lot easier to just demonize people who you disagree with than trying to deal with the arguments that they're making. And and that was the same when it came to trade policy. You know, people who called for a return of production were considered to be nativists by people like Deputy Premier uh, Christia Freeland when she was negotiating the Canada-US-Mexican trade agreement, that they were living in the past. They were Luddites, you know, they were anti-progress. Well, you know, the same kind of response is being shown towards these protesters and, you know, with the same kind of overwhelming condemnation in the media, particularly in Canada. In the U.S., it's a little bit different because Fox, there isn't really an equivalent of Fox News. I guess, you know, my problem with that is as a taxpayer, you know, if the CBC wants to have a particular position, they have every right to have that, just like CNN and box has, and consumers can choose in the ca- their cable subscriptions which channels they want to buy and which channels they don't. What I find objectionable is how taxpayer-funded public broadcasters have such a one-dimensional slant, because I don't have a choice on funding them or not. Part of my taxes are distributed uh, to the CBC. And I think that's a real issue that needs to be addressed. I mean, again, I'm not challenging their right to have a particular position. All broadcasters do. I'm challenging the notion that that position should be publicly subsidized.
0: How would you have liked to see this crisis covered by the news media in general?
1: Well, you know, I think that there had to be a little bit more challenge of the costs of shutting down the whole economy versus the costs of infection from the virus. And, you know, some people had said, you know, the cure is worse than the disease. Well, I'm not sure that was initially, but as we've gone on to a second year and people have had their second, third, fourth vaccination, you know, we got to start looking at the cost. Cancer didn't take a vacation just because, the COVID virus was here. There were other health problems. And the economy, you know, when the economy doesn't grow, that's just not a statistic in the national accounts. That affects people's lives and people's health. And there was virtually no debate or discussion of that in the media. And I thought it was badly wanting in that
0: respect this is a really big question, but the concerns that the truckers have raised, do you have thoughts on how those concerns should be addressed going forward?
1: Well, I mean, isn't it curious, it's just coincident, that since the truckers' freedom convoy, all of a sudden, premier after premier have lifted the restrictions. Of course, all of them swearing that it had nothing to do with this populist uprising, first in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and now even uh, Doug Ford in Ontario and Quebec. So, you know, I think, you know, we can thank the convoy for prompting governments to do what most citizens wanted them to do, which is reopen the economy. You know, where we go from here, as I say, uh, I don't think this populist movement is going to disappear. If it's not vaccines, it will find another platform. I think one of the legacies of this will be people will question Justin Trudeau, like his father, maybe 40 years ago, bringing the War Measures Act in, people will question whether the Emergency Powers Act is really justified in this context. And, I, you know, I think I think that politically that's going to be a liability for him. We'll see to what extent the Conservative Party is able to capitalize on that.
0: And just lastly, to close, Jeff, I um, I've been thinking about Kind of where we are at as a country. I'm I'm pretty concerned. And I noticed as I was rereading your book that you dedicated the expendables to those who have been left behind. Where are your thoughts and, and your feelings really about that class of people at right now? What are your fears? I guess
1: my fears for those people you know who think that the truckers are an assault on democracy. My fear is that. You know, if you look back at history, this maldistribution of income, leaving so many people behind, leads to political expressions that many people would abhor. Okay. Instead of demonizing the protesters, Why don't we take a good long look at the conditions that breed those protests? And why don't we start thinking about policies that might remedy those conditions, would be my message.
0: Well, that is a good place to leave it. Definitely something for us all to think about. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on with me today and uh, thinking through this pretty historic moment.
1: My pleasure, Tara. It's been great speaking to you again.
0: Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.